Okay. I didn't scare everybody away then, I guess. Yes, sir? I've got to ask, what is the iTunes quiz one? Yeah, I'll tell you about it in a minute. Okay. Right. Tell you about it in a minute. I'll remind you about it. I talked about it the first day, but it was. Yeah. I know how much stuff I talk about the first day, so sure. I'll, go, I'll go over those in just a minute. Now, we actually did have two drops after the exam, but both of those people didn't even show up for the exam, so I can't blame it on the test being that bad. So, um, Average score on the exam was 33.3. I ended up looking through it, and there were a couple of questions that I didn't expect to be Some questions I expect to be hard and a lot of people to miss them. Other ones I don't. And there were a couple of those, so I went through and added two points to each exam. So whatever it's written on the top of your score, there's two more points that's actually in the grade book. So if you got a 35 on that, then you actually have a 37 in the grade book and double check that on D2L. I went through them three times to make sure I fixed them all right. Um, the, uh, the other issue was there was one, you'll see some scratching on it. I actually made a mistake. I did a true versus a false on my answer key. It made no difference in the average because half the people got the question right and half got it wrong, but it ended up either gaining or losing you a point when I fixed that. So when I initially graded it, I had the answer key written wrong. So over what you originally had if you looked at the scores on Tuesday, you were up between one and three points. So everybody, everybody went up, nothing went down, everybody went up between one and three points. But whatever you have on your score, do add two points to that. I didn't go through and scratch it. Since I'd scratched enough, I didn't want to scratch it off again and add two points. But you got two more points than that on the, on the exam. And that brings it up to about where the exams typically are. Usually they run in around 70% average. Uh, sometimes a little lower, sometimes a little higher. Most of the other stuff brings you up. Where you normally get hurt in the class is if you don't turn in the other assignments. So if you, and if you look, if you go and look at your grades right now, there are people who did do very poorly on the exam who got things in the 20s. And you may still find that you're getting a, if you turned everything in, you might still be getting a B or a C in the class as your grades right now. So don't let the bad score on one exam throw you. You have a better idea, hopefully now, to know what to expect for the second one, know what types of things I'm going to be looking for, and hopefully that should help on the, on the next one. So, if there, are there any questions on, on that? No? No? All right. Um, coming up, I have asked you to turn in, if you have it today, that's fine, and not email me. This, so any solar observations you've got. If you've gotten one last month, that's wonderful. I have people who have gotten one, two, or none, pretty much has been what it, what it is. And that's real good for January. Again, my reasoning for doing this again is just that I want you to, I want to keep reminding you that it's coming up. Because I have people who forget about it and then all of a sudden after break realize, I forgot the whole project and I've missed half the semester. So if you didn't get any in January, that's fine. If you do get one and you want me to look at them, because I'll check them and let you know if you're on the right track or if something is way off and you're getting bad measurements, we can catch it real early too. So if you want to email me one, if you get it even a week from now, I'll be happy to look at it and check it, because I won't ask for them again until the end of the month, end of February. Quiz two uh, is up. Apparently, I'm, there's still issues. I put the picture back in there and it was working for me, but apparently it's not working for everyone. So I have to look in that again. The picture is up on the main course page, so you should be able to see it. If you go in there, you can look at the picture that way to actually be able to see it. I did, because of that, I actually extended it through 
February 7th, so I think it was due Sunday the 5th before. I've actually given it through next Tuesday. That'll give me time to finish the chapter on telescopes, which will probably start later today, and then finish it on Tuesday. So you'll have enough time to have been through all that material, and then you can take it you know, up till the end of the day on Tuesday. Homework two, the same, is still due, due the 7th of February. I changed that one before. The quiz, uh, the iTunes quiz, that's the first of three. So there will be three of them. Um, what we have is, that's these pictures that I do. And I call it the iTunes or picture of the day quiz. So I will go through those pictures. Any picture from the start of the course to the 3rd of February, that's tomorrow's, is, could be included on that quiz. Now on this quiz, you can also use, I have, you can go to the pictures, you'll have access to go to the website. You know, I don't block out you accessing the website or anything on it. You can do that. You can also use the podcast, the ones that you had the extra credit assignment at the beginning. You can use my podcast on it. The questions will be based on the pictures and the information that I, that I gave. So you can look at that. The other thing that I do on this one is that I do not time you on this one. So it may say a timer on that. There's no time limit that's enforced on it. So if you want to spend an hour on it, you can. I don't recommend spending, you know, it's not, it's 12 points. Don't spend three hours get, making sure you get 100% on it. You know, if you really want to and you're that bored and you've got nothing else to do with other classes, you're welcome to, but don't spend that much time on it. Sure. Okay. So, iTunes quiz. So you, you have no time limit on it. So if you want, if you want to take three hours and do it, I, I won't recommend it because it's only 12 points. But you're not going to be, you're not, no, you're not sitting there up against a time limit where if you want to go back and look at a picture or you want to go back and listen to my podcast and hear what I said about that picture, you have, you have that opportunity. But again, it is only 12 points worth. And then finally, the first article review is coming up due next Friday. I do make them due at the end of the week. I know class here is Thursday. I still make them due on Friday, so you have that opportunity to email it to me if you want. Question, sir? Yes. The quiz will be on D2L, yes. I'll put it, it'll be up uh, sometime this weekend. I'll put it up, but it won't be available till Monday. Because once I'm, I'm waiting to see what picture they put tomorrow and decide what, how I want to do the rest of the questions on it. But yeah, it'll be up on D2L, it's the same. And again, you'll have the unlimited time and you'll have access to go back and look at the pictures. So it's not all out of your memory. You may remember some of it, hopefully. But. But it can include any picture, so it doesn't just mean a Tuesday, Thursday picture we talked about. It could be you know, a Wednesday or a Saturday or in any picture in that. But I do limit the time range, so you're not going back three years to, to look at it. And the article review, if you have a question on your paper that you've picked out, an article that you've picked out from the magazine, let me know. You know. If you're not sure whether one is acceptable, look at the instructions. If you're not sure or you have any question on it, you know, email me a link, email me the issue, and I'll be happy to let you know. You know I'm not trying to surprise you on it and say, you, know, you picked the wrong type of article when you get the first one back. If you're, if you're unsure of it at all, email me the article that you're looking at. So if you find like a link online especially, because a lot of what you find online, it would be a news article, real short, that's not going to work real well for this project. So if you're not sure, email me. I'll be more than happy to let you know. And you know, don't email me on you know, the night of the 10th, an hour before it's, you have to turn it in, because I may not get back to you in time. But you know, if you let me know this week or the beginning of next week, I can certainly tell you if you're on the right track. Any other questions?
No? No? Okay. On to our picture for the day. So, February 2nd picture. What we're looking at is the sky, picture of the sky here, and there's a big telescope in the front. Now that might not look like a telescope that you've normally looked at. Uh, we'll be talking about telescopes, that's our next unit. We'll be talking about these later today and then coming up into Tuesday. But this is actually a similar to a radio telescope. So it looks like a big satellite dish. It's actually a lot smaller than a radio telescope. This one is about 12 meters across. 12 meters sounds real big for a telescope. I mean, that's a gigantic optical telescope. That would be among the biggest. For a radio telescope, that would be incredibly tiny. But it actually observes really short wavelengths of radio waves. Typical radio telescope might look at things that are 4 centimeters, 6 centimeters in wavelengths, so wavelengths that are this long. This is looking at things that are smaller than a millimeter. So they're real, real, real close radio waves. Real, real small ones, real higher energy ones. Now the telescope is not in use anymore. It was just the, what just served as a backdrop for this picture. And what you're seeing in the rest of it is actually the trails of the stars. So you're seeing the motion of the Earth here. And what happens is you take a, take a camera, point it somewhere in the sky, get a re relatively dark sight because if it's too bright it'll wash everything out, and just leave the shutter open. It doesn't have to be that long. Ten minutes? Five, ten minutes you'll even be able to see a little. This was taken over four hours, so you get some nice long streaks. But even five or ten minutes, you'll be able to see that the star has moved. Now don't try holding it yourself. You will need a tripod because you can't hold it steady. No matter how steady you think you are, you're not going to hold it steady for you know, five minutes, let alone for a couple of hours. But you can actually take a picture similar to this yourself, in you know, a relatively dark site, and just let the, pic let the camera expose for a, for a few minutes, five, ten minutes. And you'll actually get that. And you're seeing you know, what we used to think of as the stars moving, but now looking at it as the Earth rotate, you're seeing the Earth's rotation. And you see here you're looking towards the southern part of the sky. In here, you're in, the, in the reflection, you're looking towards the south. In the other part, you're looking towards the north. So you look at all these stars here. This is actually the south celestial pole. Now you wouldn't be able to tell that. I wouldn't expect you to be able to know the difference, except that it's happened to be taken in Chile, so I know that it was taken in the southern hemisphere. But if you do notice here, you see how all the arcs are making a little, all making circles around what would be the south celestial pole. But you notice the difference is that when you trace it to the center, wherever that would be in there, there's no star there. In the northern hemisphere, we have Polaris. So if you look to the north, you see the big dipper and the pointer stars point towards Polaris. So there's a bright star right near the pole. We don't have that in the southern hemisphere. So in the southern hemisphere, you don't have that advantage of having a nice easy star to locate where the pole is. There's nothing relative. You see, there's not really even a bright star anywhere near it. A few bright stars further out, but nothing real close to it. We just have a nice convenience right now that we happen to have a a star near the North Celestial Pole. Again, a thousand years from now, that'll be, that'll be different. So, pretty little picture. But, and you get to see, again, you're looking at both hemispheres because you see here's the southern, southern South Celestial Pole, and then if you're looking out the other way towards the north, you can almost trace where the North Celestial Pole would be down below the horizon there. Again, you're down in Chile. So, questions? No, we're ready to go, okay. All right, let's go work on finishing chapter two. 
and we had And let's see, we had just finished up, I had just been talking about the radiation laws, which I noticed nobody liked on the exam because that's the one question, one essay question that not one person tried. So, so we're going to go on beyond that. Now we're going to talk about how we could learn about the light. So radiation laws told us very general things about the light. It told us maybe where the peak was. So where the star would be the brightest depending on its temperature and it told us maybe how much energy it was emitting. But most of the, to get most of the information about a star, we actually have to split up that light. And this is just sort of the spectrum that is, that is made. What we do is take the light, take a narrow part of it and send it through a, pr a prism or some other type of device that does the same thing and it splits it up into the rainbow. So, you've seen a prism, you can take white light, send it through, and the blue light gets bent a little bit more and gets spread out, the red light gets less, and you end up getting an entire spectrum there. So an entire continuous spectrum of, of that light. And if you get a hot light source like a light bulb, you'll get a nice smooth spectrum going from red through violet, just like you would in, the, in a rainbow. But the spectroscope is an instrument that astronomers use to look at stars, to look at galaxies, to look at the planets in order to be able to study them. Because when you break this light down, we can learn a lot more about the object by looking at that light as we break it into its components. We can learn a lot more about it than we can than just looking at, otherwise all you're looking at is how bright is the object. Okay, it's real bright or it's real faint. That doesn't tell you a lot. By breaking this up and looking at the detail in the spectrum, we can learn things like what it's made up of, we can learn how it's moving. We can learn how fast it's moving towards us or away from us. And we can learn things about, even learn about how much ma how mass it is, how big it is, how much mass it has. So we can learn by splitting it up, we can actually learn a lot of things that you can't get just by looking at the overall light. So if I just look out there and look at a star, I might be able to tell you how bright it looks, but I'm not going to be able to tell you a lot of other things about it. I need to be able to do this splitting it up in order to learn that, learn a lot more about the star. So what we see in some objects, now that was a continuous spectrum. Some other things we might look at in space are not big solid hot objects like stars, but they might be gas clouds. Now I've seen some pictures of gas clouds. If you look at a gas cloud and look at it through a spectrum, again the same, we've taken out some of the lenses and things, it's all still there, this is just the general idea. You take that light, split it into a beam, go through your prism and spread it out. Now you don't see the whole spectrum. If we're looking at hydrogen gas here, instead of seeing the entire spectrum, you don't see all the wavelengths from red through violet, you'll see a bright red line. You've got a nice green line there and a few in the blue and violet. Nothing else. If you're just looking at hydrogen, you know, there's no yellow lines. There's no orange lines. There's nothing else there. You only have very specific lines. Each atom, each type of atom will have its own distinct pattern. So by looking at this we can start to learn about what things, how things are made up of. And here's an example. Here's hydrogen. Here's five different elements here. Common elements in the universe. Hydrogen, sodium, helium, neon, and mercury. And you can see each one of them has a distinct pattern. So that if you were to go and look at something that contained that element 
and you looked for this pattern, you'd know whether there was hydrogen present. You'd look for the red line. There's the bluish green, blue, and violet. If you're looking for sodium, in the visible part of the spectrum at least, sodium is pretty blank. doesn't have a whole lot except for two nice strong lines in the yellow. But that very much distinguishes it from hydrogen. So if you saw something that was made up of a lot of sodium, you'd see this type of pattern, not this one. If you see, he saw helium, okay, helium kind of looks a little bit like hydrogen, except it does have a bright yellow line, and it's missing a lot of the purple. Now I'm not going to ask you, I'm not, I'm not going to put these on a test to you to identify. I'm not going to put a blank one there that says, okay, which one is that? Is that helium? I'm not, I'm not doing that to you. I want you to know the concept as to how we can identify them. And, but I'm not going to expect you to memorize any of them. No, there's so many different ones. You know, we have 92 elements and it goes well beyond just the 92 because you can have different measures for each, for each of them. So we have all those. And again, neon, you've seen neon signs, right? Neons have lots of reds and yellows in them. Mercury, again, another, pa another different pattern. They're all different. But you can see that we could find out what, what a star was made up of, what a galaxy was made up of, what a planet contained, by splitting that light. If we just looked at the overall brightness, even if it was all made of hydrogen, we wouldn't know that. We wouldn't know whether that's all hydrogen or all helium or all neon. They might all look about the same. But we would not be able to necessarily see, you wouldn't necessarily be able to see the difference if you were not splitting up the light. So that's why the spectrum is important. Yes, ma'am? No, you could. This, this is what you'd see if it was just pure helium. Okay. So if, it, if something like the sun was made up of hydrogen and helium, you'd see this. So you'd see two lines in the red, a little, little apart. Okay. You'd see a line in the yellow, and you'd see all these lines. If it had all of these together, squish them all together. It starts to get complicated, and I'll show you one in a little bit where it's not quite as simple as I'm showing you right now. But the whole idea is that we can determine exactly what it's made up of as we learn, as we learn the elements. But yes, you could merge them together. You can also make things like molecules. So it doesn't happen a lot like in stars because they're too hot, but sodium chloride, right? Salt. Well, you can make sodium chloride. Sodium chloride would have its own pattern. Different than sodium and different than chlorine. Uh, water. Water is present on some of the other planets, present in some clouds in, of gas in space. It doesn't look like hydrogen. I don't have oxygen on there, but it doesn't look like oxygen. It's completely different from both of them. So, no. Now, if you had just hydrogen and oxygen mixed together, then yes, it would look like those two combined. Same as hydrogen and helium, you'd mix them. But if you actually combined, and unfortunately with the ones I've got here, nothing, nothing jumps out at me as usually as a big hydrogen, hydrogen and sodium aren't usually ones that you think of as combining together, so I don't have a good set there to show you, but yeah, you can get molecules that would be completely different. You can also do things like ionize an atom. Okay? If you had a chemistry, you take an, take an electron off an atom. In hydrogen, it doesn't do much because there's only a, an electron there, so you can't do a whole lot. But helium can be neutral helium, which means it has two electrons and look like this. It could also if it's very hot in a very, very hot star, you could, you could be enough energy to strip off one of those electrons. So it could be helium with one electron, it gets a completely different pattern. So you can imagine when you get up to talking about things like iron, which have 26 electrons, there are places in space where you can get, where you can get iron that has been ionized, not at all, once, twice, 
three times, 10 times, 12 times, I mean, and each one of them has a different pattern. So it gets very, very complicated compared to you know, the basic idea that I'm giving you here. Now the other type of spectrum, we saw a continuous one. That was just the plain rainbow, that was all the rainbow. We saw the emission spectrum, which was just the bright lines. The other thing that you can get, you put the two objects together. You got that hot light source and you have some kind of gas cloud. You're looking at the source through a gas cloud. This gives you a continuous spectrum. This object will absorb out certain parts of the light. So if you can see here, this is doing a hydrogen gas. And if you look again, splitting it up the same method, you get the continuous spectrum is still visible. But if you can see there, there's dark lines. So you actually have certain areas that are blocked out of the spectrum that you don't see. So you'll see, and this is a lot of what you're going to see when you look at the star. In fact, the next slide I'm going to show you is the sun, the whole spectrum of the sun. See how complicated it gets. But you see everything here. All the red comes through, but this one red line is blocked. It's dark. Nothing comes through there. In hydrogen, you'll see all the yellows and most of the greens. You have one blocked here and then in the pur into the purple. Now we'll go through how these are made in a little bit, but the pattern is exactly the same. If we look at hydrogen in absorption, the line pattern is identical to what we saw in emission. So the patterns are exactly the same each time. Now as I said, this next slide, if you try to put it all together, because something like the sun isn't just made of hydrogen, it might be mostly hydrogen and helium, but the sun has sodium in it, the sun has calcium in it, the sun has iron in it, the sun has uh, 92 different or 91 different naturally occurring elements. So there's 91, number 43 is not natural and everything else through 92. Everything there, you could find traces of uranium in the sun, gold, everything else is there. So if you look at the sun, you end up with something like this. Now you can see where all the lines are there, right? No, I don't expect you to. But you might see you have perhaps the sodium lines that we saw, those two nice yellow lines we saw earlier. There's a real strong hydrogen line. The sun does have a lot of hydrogen. But there's a lot of other stuff in there too. And you think about that, you can have hydrogen, helium, lithium, beryllium, boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, fluorine, so on, all through all the elements. They're all present there in different concentrations. And depending on the exact temperatures of the temperature of the sun, you'll see all those different lines. So here is the entire spectrum of the sun split up from almost into the infrared here to all the way into the ultraviolet. And that is, that's what you'd see for the sun. And astronomers can go and work through that and look and say, okay, here's the pattern. I can find this, I can match up this pattern of helium lines. There should be one here, here, and here. I can match them up. There's helium. Take that out. What else can we find? So you can actually determine what the sun is made up of through this. And we find out that it's mostly hydrogen and helium. If you take out the hydrogen and helium, you've taken out about 99% of the sun. 1% is everything else. But that 1% forms a lot of these different, a lot of different lines. And again, those can be, sun doesn't have much in the way of molecules, mostly are different atoms and different stages of having electrons removed from them. So again, I don't expect to give you one like this and say point out the hydrogen line. I may have done it for you here because I can point out a few of the big ones. But just the idea of how 
how complicated the spectrum gets, that it's not quite as simple as I gave you in the first place, where I said, oh, here's hydrogen, right? Red line, green line, blue, 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 I can find hydrogen. <laughs> can you find the hydrogen lines in there? Probably not very well. I said, I can point out the one big one, because that's the, big, the biggest thick line there, that's hydrogen. Couple of these down in the blue, green, and honestly, I don't know if it's probably that one is hydrogen. And then a couple down into the blue would be hydrogen as well. Just looking for the biggest ones because hydrogen is such a big component of, this, of the sun. All right, so how do we get these spectra? Well, there's three different. Now, we looked at all three of these before. I mean, I've shown you essentially the, each of them over the last few slides. But Kirchhoff's laws tell us how we get each type of spectrum. So when do we see a continuous spectrum? When do we see an emission spectrum? And when do we see an absorption spectrum? And we'll see all of them in astronomy. You can see all these different spectra. Continuous is one of the, is one, actually one of the rarest because you have to have just a solid, liquid, or very dense gas. So the sun itself, if you could look at just the surface of the sun, would pretty much give you a continuous spectrum. Now I just showed you the spectrum that showed the sun had a lot of emission, uh, absorption lines in it. That's because the sun not only has that nice solid, de solid dense surface, but it also has more beyond that. It also has an atmosphere around it. So if we look at the sun during an eclipse, you see different atmosphere around it, and that causes it to give us actually the absorption spectrum. So really what we're learning about when we look at something like the sun, we are learning about what the outer part is made up of. It doesn't tell us what the inside is made up of. We can pretty much infer that the sun is pretty well uniform, that the same stuff on the outside is on the inside. But again, you're making an assumption like that as we do when we try to discover you know, what the earth is made up of inside. We can only drill down, you know, drill down 10 miles into the earth, that's a lot. But the earth is how many, 7,000 miles down there. So we've drilled into you know, paper thin area of the crust and that's it. So what is really down there is, again, similar to the stars. We can make a good estimation and think of what they'd be made up of, but really what we're looking at is what the external layers are made up of. So that's a continuous spectrum. Continuous spectrum would just give you the whole rainbow. No, no absorption lines, no emission lines, nothing else. A low density gas gives you an emission spectrum. Now we'll see that in nebulae out in space. You have something that's not as dense as a star, just a cloud of gas. You could have a planetary nebula, for example, the end state of a star like the sun. And that would give you an emission spectrum. So if we looked at that and we'd see the specific lines of emission, bright lines, that told us what that was made up of. And in many cases, in, in those situations, we can actually, they're a little bit simpler. There still a lot, can be a lot of different elements there. But usually not quite as complicated as the one we saw for the sun. Sun will be the most complicated just because it's so close to us. Not that it's any more complex than any of these objects, but it's so close that we have so much light that I could split it up into that spectrum that filled the whole screen. A lot of objects that we look at are so faint that we can't, if we tried to split them up into that kind of spectrum, there wouldn't be enough light to actually see anything. So only because you can get so much, much light as you want from the sun, we can split it up in that much detail. Most things we don't get to see in near as much detail, so you'd lose out and you'd lose a lot of those lines. The real faint ones on the sun would not even be visible in other stars. So a low density, hot gas, like something in space, 
gas cloud, planetary nebula, maybe the remnant of a supernova. Um, we called other dark uh, gas clouds where stars are forming would all give you an emission spectrum. Finally, if you take, and this I already mentioned a little bit with the sun, if you take that continuous spectrum source, you take that hot solid, hot gas, hot liquid, and you pass that light through a thinner gas, a cooler thinner gas. It doesn't necessarily have to be cool, as in we think of cool. It just has to be cooler than the other source. So if you think about the sun, the sun is about 6,000 degrees. Okay? The atmosphere of the sun, the closest part of the atmosphere, is maybe about 4,500 degrees. Still pretty hot. You, know, you still don't want to go vacation there? A little too warm? But it's cooler than the other part. It's cooler, so it's a cooler gas. So it will cause an absorption spectrum. So you'll see that kind of combination. You will see either a continuous, an emission, or an absorption spectrum. And I'm going to show you a picture in a minute, do the same thing pictorially here in just, in just a minute. But those are the three types of spectra that you'll see. And when we look at things like stars or galaxies, we will see different, or nebulae, we'll see different types of these spectra. The lines are the same. They might be emission lines, they might be absorption lines, but they still tell us the same thing. They're still telling us what that is made up of. And also we can find out, again, how it's moving. So we might be able to find out a little bit about how it's moving. So here's, here it is pictorially. So same thing I just mentioned. This is just looking at this same source. So here's, your, here's a hot source, light bulb in this case, and a cloud of gas. Depending on how you look at that, <coughs> at that stuff together, how do you look at it tells you what kind of spectrum you'll see. First law is just looking at the hot bulb. So ignore the fact that there's a gas cloud there. You're looking not through the gas cloud, it's sitting off to one side, you're looking at just this hot source. You're going to get a continuous spectrum. You're going to get a spectrum going from red through violet. No, no breaks, no nothing. You're looking at just this extremely hot source. Okay? Now, if you look at just the gas cloud, the gas cloud's being heated up by this source, but if you're looking at just the gas cloud up here, letter C, you're looking at just the gas cloud, that gas cloud is hotter than anything else around it. So now it's a hot gas cloud. It's hotter than anything else that you're looking, anything behind it, it's a lot, it's hotter than that. It's hotter than space, than the temperature of space. If you look at that, that would be a hot diffuse gas cloud and you're going to get an emission spectrum. So if you're looking at just this gas cloud, you'd see an emission spectrum. Now if you look at the two together, now you look from position B and you see you're looking through the gas cloud at the hot bulb. Now the gas cloud is cool, cool cloud. It hasn't changed its temperature. All it means is that now we're looking through this gas cloud at a much hotter object. So it is cooler relative. Before we were looking through the gas cloud to space, the gas cloud was hotter than empty space. Now we're looking at the through the gas cloud at, say, a star. Well, that star is a lot hotter than it. So now all of a sudden it's a cool gas cloud, relatively, and we're going to get an absorption spectrum. And if you match up the lines, whatever that gas is made up, whether it be just one element, just hydrogen, just helium, just carbon, or if it's made up of 50 different elements and all different ionizations, you'll get a much more complicated spectrum like we saw for the sun. But the patterns would be exactly the same. If you see this pattern in emission, if you're looking from over there, you'll see exactly the same pattern if you look 
from the other direction. So you'll be able to see exactly the same pattern. It'll tell you exactly the same information. It just depends on where you happen to be positioned relative, relative to the objects. So depending on how you see that pair of objects tells you what kind of spectrum you're going to see and tells you what you can learn about them. You're going to learn a lot less if all you can look at is the continuous spectrum. You don't have any lines. Now you have no clue what it's made up of. You can't tell how it's moving. You can't tell anything else about it. You can't tell anything else about it. You can tell how bright it is and that's about it. Now where do the spectral lines come from? So I've shown you what we see. This is where the spectral lines come from. And you may have seen this in a chemistry class or other physical science class. This is sort of the Bohr model of the atom that we, that we use. Looks a little bit like a mini solar system. Got a sun there and got a planet orbiting it, right? It's an overly simplified model. That's not exactly how the atoms work. They're a lot more complicated than this. But compare it to the solar system again. We have the sun and we have you know, Mercury, Venus, Earth all orbiting around the sun. It's a good way to conceptualize it, but when you get down to the atom, because of the way the atoms work and the laws of quantum mechanics, the electron only has certain orbits it's allowed to be in. So it would be like you could, ha- you could be orbiting the sun and you can orbit at the distance of Mercury. And if you're not at the distance of Mercury, you've got to be at the distance of Venus. You can't be anywhere in between. Now that doesn't work in the solar system. You can make an orbit any place you want to. But this electron doesn't have a choice. It can orbit right here or maybe it has an excited state and it can orbit right here. It jumps directly from this level out to this level and it can go back between. It doesn't stop, in be- it can't stop in between. It can't orbit a little further or a little further. It can only orbit in very specific energy levels. And that's a fortunate thing because that gives us those lines. If the electron could orbit any place it wanted to, then the whole spectrum would get smeared out and it could absorb, instead of just getting a nice well-defined line for hydrogen, it would be all spread out and it would not be as easy to measure. So this is what we use. It's called called the Bohr model and there's only certain orbits that are allowed. So the electron can orbit here. That's as close as it's allowed to go. Can't get any closer to the proton than that. Can't orbit in here, can't orbit in here, can't orbit in there. It will not go there. This is the ground, this is what we call the ground state. That's as low as it can possibly go in the, in the, in the atom. That's its lowest energy state. It can go out. There are other, other energy levels as you go further out. As you see one shown there, there could also be others. You might be able to orbit here, or here, or here. Now in a little more detail, this is closer to what actually happens, although we're still looking two-dimensionally. Really it's all three-dimensional and some of these orbitals get you know, nice oddly shaped things. So we're doing a very simple, a very simple version. But unlike the planets where you have a very distinct orbit where they orbit, the electrons actually have a cloud. So there actually is a cloud where they exist in more of a probability space. So they can be at this level, they can be a little bit further or a little bit in. It's just sort of a cloud bunched around it as to where the electron is going to be found. On the average, here's where it's going to be found. Sometimes it's a little closer, sometimes it's a little bit further away. What that does is we saw those spectral lines. Well, the orbits I gave you the first time, the spectral line should be only exactly one line. Shouldn't be anything to either side. They'd be almost, you know, 
infinitesimally thin. So you would barely be able to see it. It would be just that exact, exact energy, that exact wavelength. Here, this spreads them out a little bit. The electron, and these are a little more, this one looks a little bit better. The probability is that the electron is going to be, you know, 99% of the time it's going to be very, very close to this orbit. Other times it could, it could be scattered. But it's more of just an average. And that's what we use. And that gives us those lines. And you notice some of those hydrogen lines, they weren't real narrow, right? Some of them were really broad. I mean, you could really see them on the screen. They had a real thickness to them. And some of that is due to, there's a couple reasons, but some of it is due to just as there is this spread in actually the position of the energy, energy levels. <coughs> They're not exactly precise as to exactly one, not like the orbits of the, of the planets. They actually have a little bit of leeway, but you still, you're going to average to a certain orbit or you're going to average to this next orbit out here and you're not going to have a lot in between. So that's a little bit more modern model. And again, really it's three-dimensional. It's not just two-dimensional. And you can get some of them depending on exactly how, the, how many electrons there are and what the orbits look like. You get all sorts of interesting different shapes to them. This is really the simplest mo- one of the simplest models. So here's what happens. We have an electron. Put all the states together there. And we're going to go back to the original one. We've got, here's three different states. You've got an ele- a, po- a proton at the center and you got an electron that orbits it. And it can be either in the ground state, the first excited, or the, thir- or the second excited state. So it's got three choices. Yes, there's usually a, there's a lot more energy levels than that. Just doing it simple here to give you the basic idea. And what can happen is if you get a photon come in with the exact right energy, so exact energy that corresponds to the difference between those two levels. So if it needs uh, ultraviolet photon of so many nanometers, that's exactly what it needs. If it's too big one way or too big the other way, it doesn't see it. But if you get that exact energy, the electron, the atom absorbs that. The energy has to go someplace. You can't just make the energy disappear. So this photon that came in had energy, it's now gone. Photon's gone, disappeared. The energy can't just go away, so it goes to the atom. In order for the atom to gain energy, it electron moves up an energy level. So it jumps from the lowest state to the first state, say in this case. It doesn't like to be there. It doesn't want to be in that state. Electrons always want to be in the ground state. That's their rest state. That's where they want to be. So as soon as it jumps up there, it's immediately going to jump back down. So it's going to give off a photon of exactly the same wavelength. So you might think, what's the difference? Right? It absorbed a photon and it gave out a photon. What the atom doesn't know is where that photon came from. So it doesn't know if it came from this direction or that direction. It doesn't know where it came from. And as you note in the picture here, the photon came in from one direction and goes off in another direction. So it can redirect the photons, send them off in different directions. And it's a random direction every time. You know, This electron may happen to send it off up to the right this time. Next time it might be down to the left or down to the right. It could send it in any random direction in a sphere, think of it as a sphere in, you know, in, in space. So in any random direction in three dimensions. So it will eliminate certain photons depending on how you're looking at it. Depending on how you're looking at that, that cloud, you may see, again, if you're looking through it, if you're trying to look from this direction, it's absorbing those photons. It's not sending them back to you. 
See that this photon, that UV photon, if I'm sitting down here, was coming right towards me. Right? I was getting ready to observe it. But that, that atom came and grabbed it. And it sent it off someplace else. So instead of coming to me, it's going up to the back of the room now. And I'm never going to see it. That will give us an absorption line. Because we are taking out all that light at that specific wavelength. It's all getting absorbed. And most of it's going off in completely random directions, not back, to the direct, not back in the direction where it was coming. A tiny amount would, sure. Certain, certain there would be a cases where it would absorb it and re-emit it in exactly the same direction. It could happen. But most of them are going to get absorbed out and sent out all over the place. Now that's one. That's what we call a direct decay. It goes up and it comes right back down. If you have a photon with a little bit more energy, Say you send it up not just one energy level, you got a, little, a photon with a little bit more energy, and you send it up two energy levels. So you could jump it up. You had a little bit more energy, and you send it up two energy levels. Well, now you have two things that can happen. You can do what we did the first time and jump right back down and give off a photon of the same wavelength. Okay, so an ultraviolet photon came in. Excited the atom, ultraviolet photon went off, some random direction. Or it can also cascade down, meaning that it might, an ultraviolet photon came in and excited this, it might drop down in steps, drop down one level, then drop down a second level. So it could actually emit two photons, two photons in different directions. This is often what we see when we look at nebulae in space. Usually what is exciting the gas in something like this is ultraviolet radiation from a very hot star. So very high energy radiation, you don't see it. You would not see most of it. Your eyes just aren't sensitive to ultraviolet. But when some of the atoms go through a stage like this, it can actually convert that ultraviolet radiation. Some of it gets converted to visible light. And then we can get images like this where we actually see emission from that nebula in the visible part of the spectrum. Most of what you see is from ultraviolet. Most of that that we see and where we see most of these nebula are where there's very, very hot stars. Either very young stars that might be hot or the core of a very old star. Most of those are the ones that are actually exciting the nebula and causing it to glow. And it goes through a process like this. It doesn't just give off, it just gave off the ultraviolet again. We'd never see it visibly. Look with an ultraviolet telescope, yeah, you could see it. But not with the visible. So that's actually how we see a lot of the nebulae in space that we've looked at. Question. Question. Yes? How does that happen? I'm sorry? How often does that happen? Like, what's the ratio? It depends on the atom. There's probabilities. It's, all, it's a big probability thing. So there's, you know, depending on the atom and how stable it is in the energy states, it can drop, you know, it can be one time in 10 for one atom. It can be one, nine times out of 10. You know, it has, if you're in a higher energy level, it might have, you know, a 2% probability of going here, so 2 times out of 100, and 5 times out of 100, and 12 times out of 100. It, it varies depending on the specific atom. So I can't give you a specific number for them, but it, it varies. Some of them are very rare. Some of those transitions are extremely rare. Some of them are very common. Okay? Come on. Okay. So here's a little more as to what we see. And again, see the absorption spectrum. 
if you have exactly that amount of energy, so we kind of looked at before, if you have exactly the right amount of energy, that photon will get absorbed. It'll get blocked out. You won't see it. It was coming to me. That gas cloud got in the way. It got, a, it got blocked out of the way and it went off in some random direction. It went to see you guys instead. It went to the board instead. It went up to the ceiling. There's no way to tell exactly where it's going to go. That's just a completely random emission of the photon. It's going to send it out, but it doesn't know which direction it's going to send it out. And this, we've mentioned a little bit about this before, is most of what I've been looking at showing you is the simplest atom, hydrogen. Hydrogen has one proton, one electron. Very simple atom. It gets much more complicated when you look at things like helium, which have two electrons, or carbon, which has six electrons. It gets much more complicated because now you have not just one electron to worry about, but six. You're usually going to excite the outermost ones. Those are the ones that are usually going, that are going to jump. But you also have the option, if it's a hot star or a hot gas cloud in space, sometimes these electrons are, not, are stripped off. So if it's very hot, carbon might only have five electrons, or four, or three, or two. You can actually strip all those electrons off. Each of those gives you a completely different spectrum. So the spectrum of carbon, as it's shown with six electrons, is, has one distinct pattern of lines. Take one of those electrons away, you've got a completely different set of lines. Not just slightly different, but completely different. Do the same thing again, take two of them away, you've got another different pattern. So in order for astronomers to be able to study you know, how much carbon there is, it they have to figure out the temperature of it, so they have to figure out how much of the carbon is neutral, how much of it has six electrons, how much of it only has five, that would still be some of the carbon. You'd have to add them all up together. Again, hydrogen's relatively easy because you only have two choices. It's either got an electron or it doesn't. And if it doesn't have an electron, it's very hard to measure because there are no, no electron, no energy levels. Nothing you can measure there. So ionization changes those. Multi-electron atoms, again, more than one electron changes it. And the other thing that we talked about a little bit earlier is that a molecule. Put two, put two atoms together. When we talk about oxygen, right? oxygen we breathe is not atoms of oxygen, it's molecules of oxygen. It's actually two particles together. So it's two oxygen atoms. Oxygen molecule that we breathe gives you a completely different spectrum than oxygen atoms. They're a completely different spectrum because now you have two atoms combined together. Same thing happens in space. When you get molecules, we get much more complicated spectra than you get when you just look at an individual atoms. So, all right. So here's the example. So here's the molecular. Bottom one is, uh, is atomic hydrogen. That's what we looked at before, right? Bright red line, greenish line, blue, blue, and a bunch of violet. Relatively simple. The one up above it is molecular hydrogen. The only difference is this is one hydrogen atom. This is two hydrogen atoms bound together. So you don't just double it or anything, but it makes it completely different. You get so many more transitions. Hydrogen goes from just having this one bright red line to having a whole bunch in the red. There's some yellow and green. Still got a gap there, a few little faint things in it, and a whole wave almost in the blue and purple. It's almost continuous when you get down here. So just putting two hydrogen atoms, I mean, two, that's a simple one. Two, electron, you know, two electrons, two protons, two atoms bound together. The spectrum changes completely. So if you're looking in cooler parts of space where 
that hydrogen can actually bond together and form molecules, then you're going to be looking for this spectrum for hydrogen instead of this one. That one's much easier to look for. It's much simpler. It has just very specific wavelengths. When you start looking at molecules, and we see a lot of these in the coolest stars, a lot of the spectra of the coolest stars get very, very complicated just because there's so many molecules there, and the molecules have much more complicated spectra. Again, even for something as simple as hydrogen, so you can imagine if you start thinking of you know, different bigger molecules, different organic molecules, sugars and things that may have you know, multiple atoms, not just two, but have 10 and 12 chains of atoms. We do find those in space, not in stars, but in clouds in space, you do find them. The spectra get even more complicated. All right, last section here. I said we can learn some things about that. That's sort of how you can learn about what they're made up of. The other thing we can learn about is the motion of it, the motion of the object. So what happens, we call the Doppler effect, is that if you're moving towards a source of radiation or it moves towards you, doesn't matter, right? Doesn't matter who's doing the moving. You could be doing the moving towards it, it could be moving towards you, same thing. The wavelengths will look shorter. If you're moving away, the wavelengths will seem longer. Now you've probably, you've seen this in terms of sound waves or heard it in terms of sound waves, right? Fire engine drives by. As it's coming towards you, what happens to the pitch? It's real high. And you can tell when it passes you, all of a sudden the pitch gets much, much lower. And all that is, is the Doppler effect. The waves got bunched together coming towards you, shortens their wavelength and makes them a lot higher pitch. As it's receding from you, the waves spread out more. Longer wavelength, a much lower pitch. So you're familiar with it in terms of sound. The same thing happens with, uh, with light. Light can do the same thing. I've given you a nice equation for it here, which just says that how much it shifts tells you what the velocity is going to be. So you can actually find out how fast something is moving away from you. Unless I gave you one on the homework, I don't give them to you on the exam. So sort of like the last exam, I don't make you do any calculations like that kind of stuff. So I think I might have given you one on the homework, but I don't remember this time. But all it is, and there may be even a better version of it, of it in the textbook, but all it says is that when you're moving away from something, if you're moving away or it's moving away from you, it's going to be shifted towards the red part of the spectrum. If you're moving towards it, then it's shifted towards the blue part of the spectrum. And how much it's shifted depends on how fast you're moving. So the faster you're moving towards something, the further it's shifted towards. The faster you're moving towards it, the further it's shifted towards the blue. The faster you move away from it, if you're moving very slowly away from it, it's barely shifted, hardly measurable. You're moving away faster and faster. When we get to the speeds of stars, you can measure how fast they're moving away. When we look at things like galaxies, galaxies are almost all moving away from us. And some of them are very, very quickly moving away from us at big fractions of the speed of light. And they're shifted quite drastically. You can get to the point where in some very distant galaxies, there are lines of hydrogen that form in the ultraviolet. Well, if you're moving away from us fast enough, that ultraviolet can appear in the visible part of the spectrum. You have just redshifted it that far towards the longer wavelengths. So there are actually stars that we can see, distant galaxies that we can see where they've been shifted that far that we can actually 
observe. We can actually observe their ultraviolet light in the visible part of the spectrum. You know, same thing could happen on Earth. If you're driving fast enough towards that red light, it would look green, right? If you drive fast enough towards the red light, now it would look green. Now you can't go that fast <laughs> unless unless you got some you know super rocket ship traveling towards it. So it's not going to get you out of a, you know, running the red light ticket unless the cop knows it and then you're going to get a big speeding ticket because if you're going you know, half the speed of light that it would take, that's a, good, that's a good homework problem to put in, but that's a little more calculation to do. You know, how fast would you have to be going? It ends up being like more than half the speed of light. But it would shift and we do see it in astronomy. No, you're not going to see it driving down the road. You know, your red light isn't going to look, isn't going to look green. Not getting out of it that way. But it would, it would happen and the faster you're driving, the more the the more the shift would be. And the Doppler effect, again, it doesn't matter who's doing the moving. These are both the same. You'll see the same effect regardless. Here's the source at rest. Here's the moving source. And you're just showing how the waves get all bunched together so that this person sees a blue shift. This person sees a red shift. It could be exactly the same if this this shuttle is flying away from the source and this one is flying towards the source and the source was sitting still, you'd get exactly the same measurement. So motion, the motion is relative. It does not matter who's doing the moving. So if you're moving towards the stoplight or the stoplight's moving towards you, it doesn't matter. If we're looking at a star, you know, we can tell how far it's fast it's moving away from us and we always do that. We say this star or this galaxy is moving away from us at such a speed. Not really correct. It's the relative motion of the two. Maybe they could be sitting still and we're moving in the other direction. We just, don't, we just don't see it. We see us as standing still. Or maybe we're both moving, which is the most likely thing. We're both moving in certain directions and together we see that reflected in the star. So you really can't tell exactly who's doing the moving. There is in space no you know, official reference point that says this is something that is standing still. There is nothing like that. Everything is in motion relative to each other. Because we're where we are, we make our measurements relative to Earth. You know, everything else is moving so far away, so far away, so fast away from us, or so fast towards us. Okay, so Doppler effect. Questions on Doppler? No? Oh, I had one more. Okay. So here's the, here's the shift. Here's what happens. I thought that was the end. Okay. So here's at rest. Here's that same hydrogen spectrum we looked at. That's at rest. The nice easy hydrogen, not the big complicated molecular one. If something's moving away from us at 300 kilometers per second, then all the lines are going to be shifted to the red. So red portion of the spectrum is, means just longer wavelengths. So everything is shifted towards a longer wavelength. All you've done is shifted the whole spectrum over. If something's moving towards us at 600 kilometers per second, it's going to be shifted the other direction twice as much. So you have this little shift here, well, you had twice as big of a shift here. So you can, you can see the, me the measurement. It's very easy to measure when you get those type of lines. You can actually see where the hydrogen lines are. They're just all shifted a little bit. That tells us about the motion of the star. Again, it's all relative to us being at rest. Not specifically that that star is moving, but we have to have some reference point. There is no reference point in space. So it shifts this, it's not just one line that it shifts, it'll shift the entire spectrum. And you can see for most of them, even moving at 300 kilometers per second, which is pretty fast, 
You know, that would be what? 18,000 kilometers per hour, you know, we're talking very, very fast. The shift is incredibly tiny, not even one nanometer. So, I mean, it'd be measurable, but it wouldn't be very easy. So you can imagine driving in your car isn't going to do very much to that, you know. Unless you get your car up to 300 kilometers per second, but then that'd be nice and you can get across the country in no time, right? Okay, now questions on Doppler effect. Go through our summary here. Some of this we've already covered from last time. We talked about waves and the definitions of the different parts of the wave, period, wavelength, and amplitude. Um, electromagnetic waves, I sort of went through the basics as to how they're created by, the diff by charges, as charges are accelerated and moving. And then we'll spend a little more time on the visible spectrum. So visible spectrum was the wavelengths of light. We just looked at that right now as a continuous spectrum. And that's only a tiny portion of the electromagnetic spectrum. So the electromagnetic spectrum is everything. That's all the different types of radiation that we can see. Radio waves, infrared, visible light, ultraviolet light, x-rays, gamma rays are all parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. They're all the same type of radiation. The only difference between radio waves and x-rays is how much energy they have. But they're the same type of radiation, they're produced in the same way, same as visible light. They're all the same, they have the same properties, everything else is the same. They all travel at the speed of light. You know, so if we're looking at radio waves traveling to a distant galaxy, they don't go any faster or slower than the visible light does. Still takes just as long for them to get here. X-rays and gamma rays, they may have a lot more energy, but they don't travel any faster. So looking at X-rays, we're not getting, you know, a preview of what's coming. We're still seeing X-rays, gamma rays, all the radiation comes at the same speed. So if we're looking at the sun, we can look at the sun in radio waves. It takes them eight and a half minutes to get to us. Visible light, eight and a half minutes to get to us. X-rays, eight and a half minutes to get to us. Doesn't matter which one we're looking at. And then the end last time, or two times ago, when we finished that we were doing this, we talked about how we could determine the temperature. We can look at the black body radiation. We can look at the, look at the overall spectrum as to how bright the whole spectrum is and where that spectrum peaks that tells us the temperature. So that's one of our ways of being able to measure the prop, first way that we measure the property of an object in space, is actually to be able to look at its spectrum. Where is the peak? If the peak is in the visible light, it's probably something like the sun, very bright in the visible. If it's a lot cooler object, it may be bright in the infrared or in the radio. If it's a much hotter object, it may be bright in the ultraviolet or extremely hot objects may be bright in x-rays. And then finally we looked at today, we looked at the spectroscope. All it does is split light into it, so it splits light into the rainbow essentially. And we went through the three different, Kirchhoff's three different laws. First one said that continuous spectrum is emitted by a solid, a liquid, or a dense gas. So, we've got a solid, that's you know the element on an electric stove, you heat it up, that would be a continuous spectrum. Glows, glows red or orange when you turn it up to the hottest. If it was set to go hotter, you know, put more electricity through it, you could actually get it to glow white and blue. You wouldn't want to get close to that because then you're talking many thousands of degrees. But any type of that would emit a continuous spectrum. A hot gas gives you an emission spectrum. So emission lines come out. We see just certain bright lines depending on what that is made up of. And then finally a continuous spectrum 
If you shine that continuous spectrum through a cooler gas, again it says cool, cooler gas, just relative. So if the sun's 6,000 degrees, this can be 4,500 degrees, a little bit cooler. And that gives us an absorption spectrum. That's the one I showed you earlier, that entire screen worth of the sun. So we could split the sun up into completely up into its components. Again, those lines are what tell us everything about the stars. That's what tells us about the stars, the galaxies. We've seen how they move. We can learn how they move. We can learn what they're made up of. We can also indirectly then learn about like how massive they are. All right, and finally, we talked about how the spectra occur. So we can do the models. We talked about the Bohr model where electrons are, have to occupy specific orbits. Because they occupy those specific orbits, that gives us those lines. If, they could be, if the electrons could be anywhere in the atom, we wouldn't get spectral lines. We wouldn't know near as much about the stars as we do. And that's what causes the emission and absorption lines, jumping between those orbits. So as it goes from a higher energy level down to a lower one, energy is given off and it gives off a photon. Photon coming in to a lower energy level, striking an electron, can raise it up to a higher, higher energy level. The photon disappears, the energy has been transferred to the atom, and it will then give it off again. And then finally we finished up with the Doppler effect. It changes the color with the color of the radiation or the frequency of the radiation. So if we're going fast, if we have galaxies that are moving very quickly away from us, they can be emitting ultraviolet light we might see it as visible just because they're moving so fast away from us. Or if they're moving very quickly towards us, you could make infrared light look visible or visible light look ultraviolet. You just shift, to shift the spectrum. It just depends on which way you're moving. And then finally, as I mentioned at the end, it only depends on the relative speed. So, you know, I can be moving towards you. It makes no difference whether I'm just standing still and you're all moving towards me at the same rate. It's, it's all the same. When we measure as the speed of a star, it's relative to us not moving. It is not, you know, we can take some of our motions into account, but not really all of them. So it just depends on the relative speeds because we're moving in so many different ways. We're spinning, you know, Earth spinning on its axis, Earth's going around the sun, sun's going around the center of the galaxy, we're moving and the galaxy is moving, so there's all sorts of motions that are combined together. We're looking at just the net effect when we look at the Doppler effect. All we're seeing is relatively how much that's, that star, that galaxy, that object is moving away from us. Alright, and that should be chapter 2. And I'll go ahead and start, may as well start chapter 3, since that's what we're supposed to start this week anyway. Get to it the last 10 minutes of class, so we're not too far behind. We'll get through the beginning introduction of this, start talking about telescopes here. So, interesting picture here to lead off the chapter. Um, telescopes, a couple different telescopes. Probably recognize Hubble maybe up there. Hubble Space Telescope in orbit around the Earth. So there's us in the background. But then in the foreground are a set of, uh, looks like the very large telescope down in Chile, down in the foreground. A set of relatively big telescopes compared. These telescopes are uh, this one's about 2.4 meters, so that's about one meter, so about two and a half of those across the mirror. These ones are about 8 to 10, I don't remember the exact size, 8, 10, 12. It's 
So they're significantly bigger. So you're talking, you know, mirrors that, you know, fill the room. That would essentially fill this room. Those are some of the largest telescopes that we have now, optical telescopes on, on Earth, are that big. So the Hubble telescope is actually a relatively small telescope, just nice because it's up above everything. It's up above all the atmosphere. It never has to worry about clouds, never has to worry about you know, anything else you can observe during the middle of the day because there's no atmosphere. So as long as you don't point too close to the sun, you're fine. So what I'm going to talk about in this chapter, and I say we'll just get barely started on the optical telescopes this time, but optical telescopes, the size of the different telescopes. So what kind of telescopes, what kind of sizes do we have? You know, Galileo had nice, started, found a lot of things with nice little tiny telescopes that had lenses about that big, real tiny. Now we look with telescopes that are the size of this room. So astronomers are using, the telescopes have gotten significantly bigger in 400 years. Resolution. And we'll talk about these are part of the powers of a telescope. What does a telescope do? Well, it collects light for you. It magnifies it maybe a little bit. But really, one of the most important things is actually seeing things in what we call high resolution, seeing, de- seeing a lot of detail. You know, it doesn't do a lot of good to magnify an image here on Earth. And if you ever used you know, a little telescope here, you know, it might have different lenses that will magnify it you know, 10 times, 50 times, 100 times. And you may notice you can put that real big magnifying one in, but it doesn't do a lot of good because the atmosphere is so blurry, blurs things out so much that you don't see any more detail. You don't see the detail that the astronomers see that they look with the space telescope because you have blurring effects on the Earth. What we want to see is the highest resolution. We want to be able to see the finest detail in the images. And that's what astronomers are working on now. Now that's all optical astronomy. That's all visible light. And that was astronomy up till about 80 years ago. That was everything, was visible light. That's all you could see. Now we have a lot more. We have radio astronomy. So we can actually see things in the radio part of the spectrum. And we can observe that here from Earth. That's nice. That gives us a whole new window. We can see things in radio. There are objects that are very bright in the radio part of the spectrum that are invisible optically. Center of our galaxy is a good one. Center of our galaxy is one of the brightest radio sources in the sky. It's not one of the brightest optical, optical sources in the sky. It's very faint. In fact, there's, you can't really see it. There's so much material in between us and the center of our galaxy that all the optical light gets blocked out. Radio wavelengths make it through. And then we'll finally finish up with other astronomy. So we'll look at things like infrared, ultraviolet, x-rays, gamma rays, all the other different wavelengths we can, we can look at. So how does a telescope work? Well, there's two different, two different methods we can use. We can form an image through either reflection of light or refraction of light. So this is an example of reflection. So this is using a mirror. You use a mirror to gather the light. So all the radiation comes in, the light comes in, bounces off the specially curved mirror. Flat mirror wouldn't do you much good because it would bounce the light straight back. Specially curved so that everything comes to a focus at one point. So you bring all the light to a focus here, and you can study your object. Now you might see a problem with this in in a reflecting telescope. You see a problem with looking at the telescope right there. What's going to be happening when you're looking at it? If I'm standing right here to look at my focus, I want to put my eyepiece there and look through it. Am I blocking something? (laughs) I'm blocking a lot of the light, aren't I? So actually, for a very small telescope, you can't use a mirror. 
because you have to get something here. It doesn't have to be your eye. You know, you could put a, might have to put a camera there. Might have to put, in many cases, astronomers put a very small mirror there to reflect the light back out a different direction so they can see it. But it doesn't naturally work for a telescope. You can't just look right here because you're going to be blocking some of the light. Depends on how big the telescope is. If your telescope is the size of this room, does it really matter if you put your head there? You're not going to notice the difference. You're not going to notice that little bit of light that you're blocking. If the telescope is you know, six inches around and you put your head in the way, you're not going to see anything. All the light's going to get blocked out. So it works. In fact, most of the telescopes we use are reflecting telescopes using mirrors. We'll talk about that a little bit because they're so much easier to make the big mirrors. But there is that one, that one issue with them. You can't just look at the, what we call the prime focus. You can't look right here in most cases, especially for smaller telescopes. Which is why you see, if you ever look at the real little telescopes that they sell, you know, the department stores sell, most of the ones they sell are all refracting telescopes, all use lenses. You know, if there are two or three inches, there's just no way to make a good reflecting telescope. They're usually a refractor. And that's the next one here, which does the same thing. And all the whole idea is to focus the light. So it just uses a lens, you know ground to the right shape, so you have to curve it on there so that light here gets bent a little more, light here gets bent a little less, light here passes right through, and it all comes to a focus. Now that you can, you can understand is a little bit easier to look at, right? If I put my head way over here to look, I'm not blocking anything. The light's coming through right to me. So I'm not really blocking anything, I can actually see all the light coming from that object. So that's what you see for a very small telescope. Usually the small ones, this is what Galileo's telescopes were like. Galileo's telescope uses lenses. The last large telescope that was built that used lenses was, what are we pushing now, about 115 years ago. That one was about a meter across. That was pretty big, 40 inches. That's a pretty big piece of glass, pretty big hunk of glass. But you can imagine it's very hard to make a nice big chunk of glass, try to make one the size of this room that's perfectly ground to the right shape. Can't have air bubbles inside it, right? Because the light has to travel through it. So there's a lot of problems with these, and that's why we haven't. Could we build a bigger one now? Probably. You know, our technology has improved to the point where we could probably make something bigger than 40, 40 inches across. But considering that we now have mirror telescopes the size of this room, what, what's the good of making one that's you know, twice as big as that? One of the other problems that you see is, depending on how you make the lens, right? you can either bend the light a little bit more or a little bit less. That brings it to its focus. What else does the prism do? I'll come back to it next time, too. What else does a prism do? We looked at it in the last chapter. Yeah. It splits up the colors. So not only is it going to bend the light and focus it, but it's going to bend each color a little bit differently. So you end up with a focus for the blue light, and a focus for the red light, and a focus in between for the yellow light. All the light gets spread out. So you actually don't get just a single focus. One of the problems with the refracting telescope. And if you've ever looked through one, if you've looked through a little refracting telescope, you usually see a nice image, and you'll either get like a blue or a red halo around it. Especially the cheaper ones, you might see both. You know, if you get a little cheapy, you know, twenty or fifty dollar telescope. You're not going to. You're going to see. It'll be. You'll see all that because they haven't done any of the corrections to try to account for some of that difference. The difference in the bending of the light. 
so when we see an image here, when we look at the light, this is like an Im this is how the image gets formed. You take the orange ones, the orange light to light rays. There's one up there, one down here. That's from the top part of the source. That's coming from way up at the head of the comet. And those are going to get bounced and reflected and they're going to focus here. So now we're focusing an image. It's going to have some sort of size to it. The center comes about straight through. That doesn't change. And the bottom is reflected and comes up to the top. So what have we done? We've just flipped the image. If you've ever looked through a telescope, if you look through an astronomical telescope, everything will be upside down. You, know, you look at the moon, then you go look at it this way, you'll, you'll see it's, it's been flipped upside down. And that's just the nature of how this works. Now binoculars would do a similar thing except they have enough lenses in them to flip them again so everything, when you look through binoculars, everything looks right. Because that's what you tend to use them for. It would look a little strange if you're using binoculars you know, to watch a game or something and everything was upside down, it would look a little strange. But for astronomers, they don't need the, they don't want to do, you know, the extra cost of extra lenses, extra mirrors, you know. What difference does it make to them whether the, whether the comet is this way or that way? You turn the image around. It's not like you're standing there, you know, watching a baseball game or a football game or whatever, and everything was upside down that would kind of, kind of throw you off. Let me see what's next. I'm just going to show you this one. We'll pick up back here again on Tuesday. But these are the two different types of telescopes. So we looked at how they focused and I'm going to pick, I'll pick up here on Tuesday essentially refracting telescopes take the light straight through the tube to your eyepiece to view so the light travels straight through the, star, the reflecting telescopes goes down to the mirror back up you've got to put something in there to block it you've got to get something there to get the eye light out again if it's a small enough telescope you can't just put your head there you have to make sure you get you have some kind of instrument there. So you're going to block a little bit of your light. We'll look next time at the different ways we can observe with a reflecting telescope. We'll look at that. There's a number of different ways we can do that. So I'm going to go ahead and finish up there and stop. If you did not, I know I'm missing a bunch of names, so if you did not sign in, I don't know nobody came in late, so go ahead and make sure you get signed in today so I give you credit for being here. And otherwise, have a good weekend, and I'll see everybody on Tuesday. <laughs>